Hello, and welcome back to Healthcare Super Teams. I'm Shatira Blocker. Healthcare Super Teams explores how the interconnected world of patient care can be reinvented and reimagined by incorporating team-based care. By having insightful conversations with both healthcare and non-healthcare experts who have already tackled the difficulties of mastering seamless communication and high-functioning teamwork, Healthcare Super Teams gives insight into how to incorporate these changes into the field of healthcare. During this edition of Healthcare Super Teams, we are engaging with healthcare professionals to explore the profound impact storytelling has on mental health and wellness. Storytelling can be a form of catharsis, an emotional expression, a display of connectivity, knowing that others have experienced similar challenges and serve as a coping strategy while providing valuable insights and practical advice. Sharing stories about real-world challenges as healthcare providers can contribute to reducing the stigma associated with isolation and stress. Storytelling aims to create a supportive environment for those facing similar struggles, challenges, and experiences. Our guest storytellers today are Dr. Jennifer Caputo-Seidler and Dr. Haru Akuda. Dr. Caputo Seidler is an internal medicine physician and an assistant professor of medicine for the University of South Florida's Morsani College of Medicine. Dr. Akuda is an emergency medicine physician, the associate vice president for the Office of Interprofessional Education and Practice, the executive director for the Center for Advanced Medical Learning and Simulation, and a professor of medicine for the University of South Florida's Morsani College of Medicine. Listen as they take you on a journey where the threads of time weave tales of empathy, self-reflection, and resilience. I'm Jennifer Caputo-Seidler. I am an assistant professor in the Division of Hospital Medicine, and I'm really grateful for the invitation to come and share the story. It is 6 a.m., and I am arriving for sign-out. The night before, I had admitted a patient, but his case had been the last one of the day, so it gotten finished quite late, and my attending had been the pulmonologist to do the case, so he asked me to admit the patient to our service for overnight observation, just for the sake of continuity, and we would discharge him in the morning. But as our team is arriving, the night resident tells us that about an hour ago, this patient's oxygen levels had started to drop. And just moments before, his chest x-ray had resulted. So at this point, the whole team, including my attending, has arrived. We immediately go to this patient's bedside. My attending places a chest tube, releases the air that's compressing the patient's lung. His oxygen levels recover. He stabilizes, but he's certainly not going home as we had thought that morning. No sooner are we done there than I get a page from the emergency department for a new admission. And I'm told the patient had come in with massive hemoptysis and was coughing up so much blood they had had to put in a breathing tube to protect the patient's airway. So we run right over to the trauma bay. And as we walk in, there's our new patient 
about my age at the time, mid-twenties, laying on the stretcher, very pale, and with bright red blood just pouring into his breathing. So we grab the stretcher, we grab the ventilator that he's attached to. We're on the phone with interventional radiology telling them that we have an emergent case. The radiologists clear out the case they were about to start and uh, get ready for an emergent angiogram on this new patient. And the IR guys, they're good. You know, they were working incredibly fast, but it felt like it was taking forever because as I'm standing there watching the monitor, the patient's oxygen levels are in the 70s and then they're in the 60s. And I'm on edge until I hear, I've got it. I found the bleeder. And the radiologist embolizes the blood vessel that was causing the bleeding. They suction all the old blood out of the airway. And this patient, their oxygen levels also come up and they stabilize. We're getting him settled in, putting in admission orders, transfusing blood because he had lost quite a bit before his angiogram procedure. His families arrived and we're updating them. And in the midst of all this, my pager goes off. I return the call and it is the nurse of the patient earlier in the morning with the collapsed lung. And she tells me that his oxygen levels are dropping again. So I have my co-resident go downstairs to evaluate him while we're finishing up with this new admission. And not a few minutes pass before co-resident calls me and he says, you guys need to get down here. This patient's going to code. So as quickly as we can, we finish the critical tests for the current patient we're with and we start walking towards the stairwell. And as we're on our way, overhead we hear code blue and the team already has resuscitation efforts underway. We join in and we're doing round after round of CPR and giving medications and we're not getting a pulse back. And we keep going. It's probably been 30 minutes at least. It's been long enough that the patient's families arrive. So we keep going with the code, round after round of CPR and medications, but we never get him back. And eventually my attending calls time of death. And when I turn around into the hallway, there's my co-resident and my intern, and I have tears forming in my eyes. And they immediately start offering me words of comfort. They tell me that I ran that code very well, that we couldn't have seen this coming. There wasn't anything else I could have done. And I stopped them because what they don't know is that it's not just this patient, this patient who came in for a routine procedure and had now died. That was getting to me. This day also happened to be the anniversary of the day my dad died. And watching this family's grief was bringing up my own. And once I've told them this, I can't really hold back anymore. And I run to the bathroom and I 
completely break down. I am ugly crying, shoulders heaving, biting my fist so that the whole unit doesn't hear me. And I'm not quite sure how long I was in that bathroom for, but eventually I pull myself together, wash my face, come out of the bathroom, back into our little workroom, and my team again offers me words of comfort. They offer to get me water. They offer to get me lunch because the time we've spent with these two critically ill patients has meant the whole morning has already gone by. And before I even have a chance to answer them, my pager goes off again and our patient is bleeding again. So off we go. Hello, my name is Haru Okuda and I am the executive director for USF Health Center for Advanced Medical Learning and Simulation. I'm also associate vice president for Office of Interprofessional Education and Practice, professor of emergency medicine, and immediate past president for the Society for Simulation Healthcare. I was asked to share my patient care story in the hopes of increasing dialogue among healthcare professionals on difficult cases they have been a part of or witnessed and the emotional strain or impact that it's had on them personally. The hope is that through storytelling, we learn that others have gone through similar experiences and can normalize our feelings of sorrow, guilt, and stress to help better resolve and digest these emotions. Having gone through medical school over 20 years ago, I trained during a time where we're not supposed to complain or express our feelings regardless of the emotional or physical stress we we're going through. These were the days before the duty hour standards set by the accredited Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education in 2003. For those not familiar with these duty hour standards, there's now a rule that restricts graduate medical residents and interns from working clinically over 24 hours straight. In addition to this rule, they limit the average work week to 80 hours per week. Before this rule was in place, and during my training, the longest I worked without sleep was close to 48 hours. This is my story of one of those long, pre-duty standard overnight calls. I was working as an intern in Queens, New York in 1999, and as an intern, we are typically placed on a team of four other interns or four interns total who rotate uh, overnight calls every four days and are responsible for admitting patients for the emergency department. The first week of my intern, I recall, already started out horribly uh, that July as one of my team members had died by suicide and my other co-intern ended up in the emergency department herself as a patient due to exhaustion and dehydration. Nonetheless, we had to continue working on admitting our patients, ordering labs, following up on labs, drawing blood, responding to pages, handwriting our notes, following orders, and discharging patients, to name just a few things that we did. Our boss was typically a second or third year resident, only one or two years our senior, um, and they were carrying out orders from their supervising attending physician. I remember during this month, um, I was unfortunately assigned to a resident who was notorious for not being around, um, often called lazy, not accessible. And on my call, 
uh, my shift that I was covering call that evening, um, I was called down to the emergency department to admit an old woman, an elderly lady from the nursing home for dehydration. So I remember going down to the emergency department and I went to speak to this woman um, and uh, she was pretty confused, um, very um, uh, dehydrated looking. Um, and um, when I looked through her lab laboratory work and her chart, um, she was being admitted for sepsis, which is a infection uh, through her bloodstream. Her vital signs didn't look great. Um, her blood pressure was low, her heart rate was high, and um, we needed to give her fluids, um, antibiotics, um, uh, in order to resuscitate her to help her survive. Um, she was obviously, um, had suffered a stroke in the past, uh, really wasn't verbal, wasn't eating, um, and so um, a decision was made where we needed to place a central line. Central lines are, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with them, there are big uh, IVs that are placed in uh, big veins in your body, typically either in the groin in a femoral vein or in the neck in um, a subclavian or internal jugular vein. And the goal of these uh, central lines is so that you can administer large amounts of fluids um, or medications or blood, um, and you can uh, administer multiple at the same time. So these are often reserved for the sickest, sickest of our patients. Um, the tip of the uh, catheter of the central line typically goes up close to the heart so it can, um, uh, again, administer all these needed um, medications and fluids uh, rapidly. Um, as with any procedure, comes risks. And um, the challenge with central lines is it, because it's such a large um, catheter, it requires a large needle um, to introduce the catheter into the body. And um, because these veins are quite large um, and they are right next to the artery, um, it's often um, one of the complications is that you can actually miss the vein and hit the artery. And as you can imagine, uh, putting a large needle into an artery comes with lots of complications, including bleeding, um, uh, hematoma, which is swelling around the site, and it can, it can actually lead to pretty significant complications. So um, ha because I had never placed one before, and I'm an intern, I, um, nervous about it, I called my resident and said, hey, um, can you uh, there's a woman here. I have to place a central line. Can you please come down to the emergency department and help me place the line? And the resident um, said, um, you know, I, I showed you how to place a line already once on a patient. And so you should be able to do it yourself. Um, so you're, you know, I'm not coming down. You take care of it and let me know how it goes. Um, again, you know, 20 years ago, this was a time where we didn't question authority. Um, we just did what we were told. And so um, I 
was very nervous about it. Um, I didn't have, you know, quick access to an iPhone where I can um, look on YouTube and at least even rehearse the uh, procedure. I had to open a book in the emergency department and go through pictures. And um, I had a pretty decent idea of how to do it. I hadn't seen it before, but I had never actually done it. Um, so I go to the patient and I um, do all the things like cleaning the site and I talk to the patient, though the patient, you know, was, you know, non nonverbal, wasn't able to speak back to me. And I said, hey, uh, we need to place a central line. It's going to be in your groin. Um, you're going to feel a pinch. And I went through all the, the, the steps and um, I'm, you know, gowned up and I'm super nervous, breathing heavily, you know, sweating profusely. Um, and, uh, the goal is one of the main goals of placing central line is to place it in the vein, as I mentioned, and not the artery. And so, um, I'm going in with my needle, was able to then, um, get a flashback of blood and, um, fortunately it was dark. Uh, non-pulsating blood, which means I was in the vein, as opposed to bright red pulsating blood, which would have been the artery. So uh, I remember just being super relieved um, to be able to place it in the right place. And um, I was holding it in place. And to put a central line, you have to put a guide wire in it. So it's a very thin wire that you guide through the needle that you place the, in the vein and then you pull the main needle off and then you thread the catheter over this guide wire in order to place the central line in place. And so I was able to do all of that pretty um, competently and I was very excited. I remember being just very excited. This was my first central line I had placed and I felt like I did everything right and I had secured the central line in place. And, um, and when I was going to clean everything up. I thought I finished, everything went great. I said to the patient, you know, central lines in place, we're going to be able to give you fluids. Um, and then as I'm cleaning up, I'm looking for the guide wire. And as you can imagine, a, a guide wire is a wire. It's a long wire um, that once you place the central line, you're supposed to remove it and discard it. And I couldn't find it anywhere around me on the patient, on the floor, I checked everywhere. And I had this sudden dread in the pit of my stomach that I had accidentally let go and left the guide wire within the central line. And the complication that can occur with a guide wire um, left in the body is it can actually uh, um, propagate to parts uh, once it you know, goes through, it can go into your heart. It can just, it can lodge into your heart. It can cause irregular heartbeats. It can be very serious and you need special uh, surgery or interventional radiology to remove it. So, um, in a panic, I go and take the tape off and I, I pull out the whole central line in the hopes that, you know, maybe it's still there. And there was about an inch of the guide wire still sticking out past the skin. And I was able to pull the guide wire out um, from the patient. So 
fortunately, it didn't dislodge, it didn't embolize, it didn't go to the heart, it didn't cause irregular heartbeats, but it was uh, a near uh, mistake. Um, obviously, the patient, um, it did cause harm in the sense that, you know, now she had to get another central line placed. Um, and uh, it was a horrible experience. Um, you know, I I was already extremely nervous going into it. I didn't feel competent to do it. I had no support from my superiors to walk me through it. Um, and yet, you know, I'm not allowed to complain. I thought I, you know, for a moment, I thought I actually did a good job and then had a situation where I, there was an error. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think this is an example where, you know, this is over 20 years ago, um, but it caused such an impact and and you know after that it's not like i had a moment where somebody took me aside and said hey look you know it happens don't worry you know you should have had supervision you should have you know had guidance you should have been able to practice that in a safe environment um but it was me going to my my resident to say i'm sorry this is what happened it's my fault and then being reprimanded and you know, I, I witnessed this happen to my colleagues. Um, you know, many times I've witnessed where it actually led to serious harm over my, you know, early career. And as I went through, you know, medical school and residency, I, I really felt like we should be training our doctors in a different way. Um, and, and so I think you know, that I think that's one example of, of many, but I always think back to this one example, um, which really pushed my career in a very different trajectory than where I initially started medical school. I think I started medical school thinking that I was going to be a straight, you know, clinician, a doctor who takes care of patients. Um, but um, I have spent my whole 20 year career focused around uh, building safe environments using healthcare simulation for doctors and nurses and healthcare teams both um, you know at the um, entry level you know the students the trainees all the way to experience uh, doctors nurses pharmacists health professional teams um, so that they can, practice in a safe environment and not place patients at harm. Um, so, you know, 20 years later, um, I feel, I you know, hopefully I feel that I'm a part of a small part of how we've changed uh, training for our healthcare workforce. Um, now, you know, at, you know, here at USF, we train all of our incoming interns through simulation, um, we have them go through checklists, ensure competencies before they go and you know place um, central lines on patients. Um, there are um, standards out there that um, is being practiced across the country now. Um, but you know, many many years ago, two decades ago, this was not the case. And um, you know, I think it not only 
you know, cause situations that cause harm for our patients, but also cause a lot of anguish, um, guilt, um, and uh, harm to our learners. And I don't know how many thousands and ten thousands of students have gone through these similar experiences. And you know, I, I wonder at times whether it's these types of experiences that have caused our um, many of our clinical workforce to harden in terms of their emotional um, empathy and sympathy that they have. Um, and, um, you know, I hope, I hope we're able to change and shift that um, um, for our future healthcare workforce for the better of our patients. Um, so thank you for letting me share my story. Our guests have been Drs. Jennifer Caputo-Seidler and Haru Akuda. We hope that their narratives will inspire fellow healthcare professionals to courageously share their own stories, continuing to foster a culture of empowerment and solidarity. If there's a particular topic you'd like to hear more about on healthcare super teams, please email us at ipep at usf.edu. Until next time, I'm Shatira Blocker. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Healthcare Super Teams.